Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place yet spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We try to make keeping up with the literature easy by spoon-feeding you the latest research. All right, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. First off, picking a first line of the first lines for the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia. Second, heart failure guidelines, yuppie! Third, vital signs are vital, but can I send them home anyways? Fourth, a little help from POCUS for IVs and kids. And finally, we'll take a moment to be reminded of a somber time in medical history, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's summaries. Don't worry, they're still good articles, but if you'd like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, and remember, if you have any trouble affording a subscription, then just let us know and we can help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the noble Aaron Lacey, Joseph Miller, Megan Hilbert, and Clay Smith. All right, let's jump straight over to the third article. Outcomes of patients discharged from the pediatric emergency department with abnormal vital signs out of the American Journal of Medicine. Vital signs, sing vital in French, or believe it or not in Japanese, it's a baitaru sign, which is funny. I'm learning Japanese, so I just wanted to look that one up. And Japanese steals a lot of kind of English words and just makes them sound Japanese. I love it. Anyways, we know that discharging elderly patients with abnormal vital signs predicts bounce backs. But what about in kids? They're way more resilient. This study was a retrospective cohort study of 83,000 patients less than 18 years old discharged from a tertiary academic pediatric emergency department. 18% of these cases were discharged with vital signs, which were below the 5th or above the 95th percentile of normal. That is to say, they were not normal vital signs. Among these patients with abnormal vitals, 2.3% had a bounce back visit for a related condition and about a fifth of those returning children, so 0.5% of the total, were admitted after returning. This seems pretty low all by itself, and was not significantly different than the numbers seen in children who were discharged with normal vital signs. Now, there were some children who were more likely to bounce back with these abnormal vitals. That is, if they had more than one abnormal vital sign, an odds ratio of 1.6, were less than 3 years old, an odds ratio of 1.7, or had high acuity during the initial visit an odds ratio of 1.3. None of the returning children died, arrested, or were intubated, but four did go to the pediatric ICU. Essentially, if you think they're safe to go home despite an abnormal vital sign, and then you're probably right, and they're no more likely to be returning back than anybody else. If they're younger than three years old, though, have more than one abnormal vital sign, or were quite sick when they first came in, then maybe just double-check you're okay with them leaving. In a spoonful, it may not be necessary to double-check that all the vital signs have normalized in children who are safe to go home by your gestalt. There were no more likely to return to the emergency department than those discharged with normal vital signs. And then the fourth article, titled Ultrasound for Pediatric Peripheral Intravenous Catheter Insertion, a Systematic Review out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Many pride themselves on their IV cannulation skills, and that's fair because it can be pretty tricky. And I'll tell you that I probably could not hold a candle to someone who regularly puts IVs in kids. To compensate, I take all the help I can get, and when I have a tricky IV, I like to use the ultrasound. Is that practice evidence-based in kids, though? 
This study was a systematic review and meta-analysis of RCTs regarding the use of ultrasound in pediatric peripheral IV cannulations. Nine studies were included with the goal of determining how helpful ultrasound is on success rates. Five of the studies showed ultrasound to actually improve first attempt success to 78%, compared with controls at just 66% for their first attempt success rate. As a secondary outcome, there was also an increase in overall success when ultrasound was used. Unfortunately, due to the heterogeneity of the data, no comment could be made on how long, i.e. how much more time it took to do things with an ultrasound than without. A big limitation was that most of these studies were done on sedated patients in the operating room who had already received vasodilating medications. That's not exactly the emergency department patient population. As emergency medicine docs, though, we are generally quite familiar with ultrasound-guided techniques. So even if this research isn't super generalizable to the emergency department, ultrasound is still probably a promising tool for difficult IVs. In a spoonful, ultrasound-guided peripheral IV cannulation has been shown to be effective in some populations that doesn't overlap well with emergency department patients, but it, you know, it's still in our toolkit. And then the fifth and final article titled 50th Anniversary of Uncovering the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, A Story and Timeless Lessons out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study was a real abomination and honestly a deep scar on the reputation of medicine while it was in the process of modernizing. Now besides the unspeakable acts, which if you're not aware of them then please read this study, the effects of this study were wide-reaching and long-lasting on countless people due to the irreparable harm that was caused by a lost amount of trust in the medical system. If these events could be undone, then that would be the best thing possible, but unfortunately they can't. So we must remember them and remember them well so we can learn from them. Let's focus on how not to make these mistakes in the future again. First, let's give a quick outline to this dark chapter of history. The public health services at the time performed a 40-year study, that's right, a 40-year-long study, in which African-American men with syphilis from Macon County, Alabama, were purposely withheld curative treatment in order to follow the natural history of the disease of syphilis, all while deceiving the patients into thinking that they were, in fact, receiving treatment. Alongside this, some of the same investigators intentionally infected Guatemalan inmates, prostitutes, and psychiatric patients with syphilis and gonorrhea to learn more about transmission prevention. All of this was published publicly in 15 articles over 37 years, and not once was a letter written to question the ethics over any of that time period. Finally, a young social worker named Peter Bruxton, when asked to interview some of the participants, brought the ethics of the entire situation to light. There is a lot we can learn from this, and I can only scratch the surface of it here for you. Standing up to something that has been around for longer than you've been alive, as was the case for Peter Bruxton, who was only 29 at the time when he started to raise flags, that takes courage, and we need to support that kind of courage. Senate trials following the Tuskegee study led to formalized scientific ethics review boards, informed consent, and did a lot to revolutionize research ethics. Patients deserve to know what happens to their bodies, and this probably goes double for vulnerable patients. In the moment when things like this could be happening, it might seem easy to rationalize things to yourself. 
The investigators of this study thought that they were doing a good thing by taking a unique opportunity to study this disease. But you should be rationalizing stuff like this to yourself or to other people. And that's why we really want diversity in decision-making committees. And honestly, everywhere, it's absolutely necessary. It keeps the most people safe. In a spoonful, what happened in the Tuskegee syphilis study was absolutely unacceptable. And this kind of oversight and lack of critical thinking by the many who were involved, who didn't question what they were doing, allowed it to go on for far, far longer than it ever should have. The next time you're annoyed that a patient isn't taking your advice or following your suggestions very well, remember the harm that doctors have done to people in the past and be patient. Okay, on from that uh, kind of somber chapter. What did we learn today? Third, it does seem safe to discharge children with abnormal vital signs to go home. Presuming you've assessed them to be safe, it shouldn't be the only thing to hold you up. Perhaps think twice if they have more than one abnormal vital sign, if they're less than three years old, or they were kind of on the sicker side when they came in, though. Fourth, most of the evidence on ultrasounded peripheral IV cannulation is on surgery patients. But although it's easier for them, I don't see why it wouldn't help us, too. And then from the last article, we had a quick history lesson about the time doctors did irreparable harm in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Don't dwell, but always be skeptical of your practices and always put your patients first. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. And remember that there is a newsletter that accompanies this podcast, and so you can have a little bit of space repetition for yourself. Now, if you're feeling a little bit of FOMO, feel like you want to hear more, you want to read more, then come over and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time.